from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm here with Chris Derricks. We're going to talk about malware, the evil software that gets into your computer and onto your network and does bad things. This is your host, Brett Pyatt. I'm a 20-year internet security veteran, and here with CyberTalk Radio, our goal is to help educate you, our listeners, on different types of security threats for your individual home or your business, and to help keep you safe on the internet. Chris, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, Can you share a little bit about your background and uh, why we would want to listen to you talk about malware? Sure. Uh, First, thanks for having me. Um, again, my name is Chris Garretts. I'm a CEO and co-founder of a cybersecurity startup here in San Antonio called InfoSight. Uh, my background uh, is quite extensive in security. I started in the Air Force uh, doing encryption and doing security uh, for the Air Force network. So I spent about a decade of my time with the Air Force, either securing networks or hunting down malware. Uh, my last assignment was actually here in San Antonio at Lackland Air Force Base, where I spent about five, six years uh, of my life defending the Air Force network from malware and other threats that were trying to attack the, the, the Air Force. So then what made you decide to make the leap to go from defending our country to now helping businesses defend themselves? Part of it wasn't my choice. Um, I was actually medically retired from the Air Force. So I had a, I had a plan to stay in and serve my country for 20 years plus. Um, I was an officer you know, on a track for, for big things and I wanted to uh, really, you know, that was my, my entire goal to serve my country. Um, but you know, life throws things at you. Um, I was medically retired for a condition that uh, really didn't allow me to, to serve anymore. Um, so I looked at other opportunities and it was actually fortuitous because uh, I looked out and I said, I have these skills in cybersecurity, hunting down malware and enterprise commercial, uh, everyone outside is just getting hit hard, harder than we were. You know, we, were, we had spent a lot of money on defending ourselves and we're the military, we, we think about it this way. So seeing how many problems were happening in the commercial world uh, and outside the military. Uh, I grabbed a few of the folks out of my team, decided to start InfoSight to be able to go and deliver the same kind of service and the same kind of capabilities that we were using in the Air Force uh, to everybody else. So for malware, this is a big bucketed category and many folks have likely heard of one type of malware, the computer virus uh, starting all the way back on uh, floppy disks, depending on how long you've been using uh, computers where you had to be worried if you got a floppy disk from somebody that you didn't know about, then you were gonna put that in your a floppy drive and maybe it would infect your computer. If you had two floppy drives, it would move from one to the other. So can you go for a few minutes and kind of share your view on the definition of malware, some of the different types, and, and then how those have uh, evolved over time? Yeah, I think the, the big demarcation point, what you're gonna find with people in the 90s who were doing this with worms, for instance, um, that used to be the big problem is, is viruses would just replicate all over the place, take up all your resources, slow down your computer, and that's how you kind of find they found them. Um, back then, in the 90s, early 2000s even, it was all about the state of the art. What can I do with this software? People are, are building computers, buying computers, using computers for a specific reason, but that is a multi-purpose computer. That thing can do a whole lot more, and there's people out there who want to find out what are the limits. So fast forward to today, now it's no longer how fast can I make this software spread and, and just show people that I know what I'm doing and I, I, I have fun. I can high five people when I do that. Uh, now you have criminals who have a specific intent. It's not just what this malware can do, it's what can I steal. 
Yeah. So you're talking about what Robert Morris's famous internet worm of mm-hmm. it's going to just try to replicate itself, but it didn't have any destructive payload. Right. There was no intent there. It was just, can this happen? And it can. Yeah. So we have worms, which are kind of a self-replicating. They spread themselves uh, from host to host or target to target. Uh, so that's one type of malware or one type of, I guess, a, attack vector where it's a self-replicating, self-spreading. Uh, but so if we go through, so you, there's these terms, a Trojan. What's a Trojan out here for our audience? Sure. Um, so a Trojan is a virus or a piece of malware that is hidden within a good piece of software that you want to download. So if you're searching for um, a cleaner to speed up your computer, for instance, people will, will look for that and they'll download that from some kind of website that may not be reputable. Um, once they double click it, it may clean their registry or claim to have done that, but it's also dropping a piece of malware that gives access to that hacker that wrote that software. So, and then uh, another type of malware, uh, folks may have heard about botnets or computer bots. Um, what are, are some of these uh, types of things? Yeah, so botnets are, uh, are still an area where worms are useful. Um, worms are self-replicating, so uh, they're going to be hitting a lot of systems. It's completely untargeted, and the goal today is either ransoming or building a botnet. And that botnet, the usefulness of a botnet is I can now enlist your computer to attack other computers. I'm not attacking you for your stuff. You know, you may you may be, you know, it may be your grandparents and your, um, you know, back home in Oregon, but someone's using that computer while they're not using it to attack other people. And then, so you have these uh, use for attacks, uh, and then also uh, there's, I've heard, I guess, Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can you share a little bit about that? I mean, I guess my understanding is that people will create that net of, of bots and then uh, try to use it to mine Bitcoin, which will use your CPU, maybe run your electricity bill up, depending on um, how many computers you have that are compromised. Yeah, I think uh, when we, if we, kind of just frame malicious software. Malware is malicious software. It's just any software that's designed to do something you don't want your computer to do. Um, and so the motivations are always going to be the, the thing you got to concentrate on. And if the motivation is economic, you can do a couple different things. And one of them is, is Bitcoin mining. Bitcoins are, uh, you know, it's a digital currency that is actually created by massive amounts of computing power. There's a limited amount of computing power in the world. That's what creates um, the value of Bitcoin. So if I can create a botnet and list your computer to build uh, to, to to mine me Bitcoins, I can make money off of your power bill. So and then there's uh, another category, spyware. So we've kind of talked about uh, the worms that replicate. We've talked about the the Bitcoin mining or the resource theft. Uh, so is, how, how do you draw the distinction between like the resource theft and then a spyware application? Yeah, again, it comes back to intent. Um, so if you are economically focused, you're just going to want to steal money. That's either use your power bill and use your CPU to give me Bitcoins, make me money for me, uh, enlist you to uh, steal other people's information that I can sell. For spyware, if my intent as a hacker or an attacker is to steal information from you, like your passwords, like your, um, you know, say I want to blackmail you as an individual, I'm going to need to spy on you first and see what you're doing on the computer. If you're searching for certain specific terms, um, maybe that's a, a piece of healthcare information. 
that you're searching for. Now I have a piece of information on you I can use against you. So, and then there's a, a new, or uh, I guess fairly new category called ransomware um, that has started to really uh, spread like a bad wildfire here in 2016. Um, so what sort of brought the rise of that and on the economic motivation, they're holding your computer for ransom, but um, what have you seen about the specific rise for that in businesses? I think it's the number one threat today. Um, from what we've seen. And I, I say that in, with the full knowledge that our product, InfoSight, we do not actually address ransomware. We address persistent compromises and spy spyware, people who are trying to stay in your network for a long period of time. We give you the ability to audit your network and see if anybody's in there. That does not stop ransomware. Ransomware is a, is a hit and run attack where they're, as soon as they're in, they're locking up all your files and telling you, you gotta give me $500 in Bitcoins uh, or you're never gonna see your data again. So it is very insidious, it is very fast. The only way to stop it is, is a prevention measure or a backup in the, uh, on the aftermath side. So uh, now these hackers are going out with this malware and they're getting it into people's networks. So they've written this bad software, we've covered the different types of intent and uh, how now are they typically getting the malware into the network first to begin with? Oh, God. there's so many ways, so many ways. Um, and this actually has it resulted in a preponderance of, of new technologies and new companies coming out saying they can prevent attacks and they can uh, stop them. Uh, the reality is there's a thousand vectors. There's a thousand ways to get in. But if we protect ourselves from, say, the top five to ten, we can usually have a, a we can have a good confidence that we're pretty safe online. Um, the number one is an email vector. That is you getting emailed by somebody, uh, a link or an attachment that has some kind of Trojanized code in it. It looks benign, you double click it. The, one of the ones that worked very well for the past, say five, six years, I think even back to 2005, uh, is a FedEx notification or UPS notification. They would send it from like ups1.com instead of ups.com. And you'd get a notification It looked exactly like you have a package, click on this tracking number. You click on that tracking number, and if you have the wrong version of Internet Explorer, you get popped. Yeah. So you, you have the malware coming in via a social engineering, uh, and that happens, I think, for a, a broad set of targets, kind of the opportunistic drive-by targets. When you see attackers going after a specific target, so say that it's now the attackers know they want to get into company X, uh, can you walk through at a high level on how uh, the attacker would profile their target and maybe what different types of things they would look at um, in addition to maybe an email social engineering campaign, which would be one tactic you still could run on a focused target. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now you're getting into stuff I'm really passionate about because this is what I did in the Air Force. Um, so we, we really focused on uh, targeted attacks, targeted uh, groups that were actually had an intent. This is nation state level type of hacking. This is uh, organizations that are targeting individuals um, like celebrities. You know, if you want to target the presidential candidates, um, we don't even call it spear phishing at that point, or phishing. Phishing is like the normal term that, that grandma gets hit by. Um, spear phishing is a targeted attack where they say, I'm going to target these individuals with this kind of um, information. We call it a whaling when you're going after like a, a Clinton yeah. or a Trump. That's, that's where you're going after someone big. You got to get through, not just maybe not just to them, but maybe to their aides, someone who touches their systems and has information on them. Yeah, so you could 
send an email actually legitimately from that AIDS account mm-hmm. to the person of influence, and they're going to have a level of trust that if their chief of staff sends them an email with a link in it, they may actually click on that, where if they got an email from uh, brett at hacker.com, they likely are not going to click on that, or they're going to have some countermeasures in place that would flag and block that. Right, yeah. So they're going to they're going to utilize trust relationships. So we actually, uh, um, the security pr- practitioners that kind of track this movement, track the attackers in this space, um, and track the groups that are doing this, uh, we have something called the intrusion kill chain. It's actually the steps an attacker takes to target an individual or an organization. And that starts from step one of reconnaissance, find out everything you can about that person. Go on Google, search for them, what are they interested in? If I want to attack a company, the easiest way to do that, I can I can create malware that will get past a certain type of antivirus. If you're running McAfee or Symantec, then all I need to do is find malware that can get past Symantec because you don't run more than one antivirus in your enterprise. So how do I find that out? How do I know you're running Symantec or McAfee, the two biggest antivirus vendors? Yeah. I go on you know, Glassdoor, I go on some of the recruitment sites. Who are you hiring? And what skill sets do you require of them? If you require of them the ability to manage Symantec, you probably have Symantec. So I can now target you with specific malware designed for your defenses to get past you. Yeah, that's uh, one of the interesting uh, attack vendors and information leakage where I think enterprises don't even realize that job postings will share all sorts of things, not only about what they've run from an IT systems perspective, but potentially what research and development projects they're working on. Like Apple was um, outed on their car project uh, when there were a bunch of uh, recruiters calling around uh, into the automotive industry trying to hire folks that had automotive expertise and maybe they're doing that just to write software for cars, but they started hiring aerodynamicists and other people. So they, at minimum, have a research group looking at building and developing and designing cars. Exactly. And that, in the military, we call that operational security OPSEC. Um, it's a fairly well um, understood topic in the military. It's not well understood in, in the commercial land and the enterprise, but it's being used against them. So uh, we've been talking about different attacks, different categories of malware and different things you can do. Uh, So here in America, we've got this uh, election coming up here in uh, another 30, 45, 60 days. I'm a little bad on specifics of stuff like that. About 37 days. I'm not counting. 37 days. So if if I were an attacker um, and I could compromise either of these big presidential campaigns, I mean, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising. They're spending... um, who knows how much on all of just the rest of the people, the volunteer hours, the everything. Uh, this is a target that an attacker, if they could get in and ask for a ransom, they could ask for a lot of money. This would make it a very high-profile target. And that's for the cash-motivated ones. But there are other countries that are also motivated to get in and disrupt the American election process. So if I'm an attacker... And I'm going after these campaigns. Um, I mean, it's, I think, fairly common knowledge um, out in the security world that uh, the Trump campaign uh, is their cyber operations and their websites and all of that are run here out of San Antonio. Um, Another company here in town handles their websites for them. So if I'm an attacker, I know who the company is that handles uh, the Trump campaign. Um, I probably know who handles the Clinton campaign as well. Uh, where would I go from there, and what do they have to worry about with this OPSEC that you, you had mentioned earlier? 
Yeah, I think uh, the, the election is interesting because there are so many motivations. There's, there's economic motivations. These organizations have a lot of money. They have a lot of things to protect, information to protect. Um, you know, there's people leaking information to try to influence uh, the election. So who's doing it? That's the big problem. Um, if I was an attacker, and I'll, I, I, won't, I won't talk about specifics of what I know about who's attacking who right now specifically. What I'll, what I'll probably get into right now is um, me as an attacker. I'm, a, I'm trained as an attacker. Uh, I did this you know, for the government uh, for testing purposes. We did war gaming, things like that. So as an attacker, if I was going to try to influence the election, say I'm a nation state, say I'm a disgruntled person, say I'm a far right or far left person who is just extremely motivated to make sure my candidate wins, um, you can do that a lot of different ways. Influencing the election is probably the number one thing that's happening right now. How do I influence that election? Dig up dirt. Um, the, the opposing organizations are already researching these, this dirt on everybody, and we've already seen it where the the dossier on the opposing party has been grabbed from the election campaign offices out of their servers and posted online for everyone to see. That helps influence, you know, thought and what people think about those those candidates. So, um, and hacking is is really big this year. It wasn't in previous years. We've never really heard stories hit mainstream on this. Um, but this year it is a big topic and people are doing it by either hacking into the election campaign directly or hacking into the aides, hacking into the people who are volunteering. These aren't even employees. These are just volunteers who have access to those networks. And most elections, you know, they're, they're dying for volunteers. So, you know, who's vetting them? Yeah. No, I mean, the, the vetting that happens in most uh, political campaign volunteering is will you show up? Do you want to be helpful? Do you legitimately at least present to believe in the candidate that you're volunteering for? Uh, but I think both of the uh, campaigns uh, have to also deal with um, just on the ground operatives where maybe I'm really registered with the opposing party and I go out and volunteer to try to undermine the campaign from the inside from a human perspective. But now I also get given some digital access that I could either give to an attacker or um, I could be uh, sell to an attacker. I could be careless with it because um, I really don't care about this candidate. I'm actually trying to undermine their campaign from the inside. Yeah. So um, now let's just take it through, you know, step by step. Say I am an actor trying to influence this campaign. Step one, I may not have. I have the intent, but I may not have the skill set. So step one is find people who have that skill set. There's hackers for hire all over the internet. You can find them online. You go into the secret deep deep web networks called Tor and other other networks like it, um, where you can go and search for people who are selling their skills for hire. Hackers for hire that is a big market right now. It's making a lot of money. So I can take a hacker who has no intent, but he has the skills. I can take a person with intent and political motivation, but knows, but and has money, match them together, and suddenly you've got a force that's to be reckoned with. So that's step one: find the skills and intent, and match them together. So there's there's hacker dating sites out there. There are. Yeah. That does not sound very friendly. No, and it's and these are coming from countries that don't exactly have the kind of laws that we have or the visibility even to, to stop this. Some countries are just worrying about, they can't even stop people from shooting each other. What are they gonna do about computers and bits being thrown around? They yeah. don't even care. Way, way down on their list of priorities. Mm -hmm. And now with, with Bitcoin being um, relatively stable as a, a digital currency that, that circumvents a number of the traditional financial network controls, uh, there's ways for these 
uh, motivated parties to get matched up with a hacker and to be able to actually execute a financial transaction that is much more difficult for the governments to uh, prevent or for the uh, law enforcement and authorities to prevent happening or even to track. Right. And the tracking is the biggest one is because, um, you know, the number one way to stop these guys from actually committing these hacks is attribution. Who is doing it? And that is the hardest question to answer. Is it is it Russia? Is it someone Russia hired? Is it a lone wolf? Is it an organization? Who knows? Yeah. Oh, and, and if you have a, a high profile target that does not have adequate security, the answer to that question could actually be all of them hack the target. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, one that we would see in, in my past life as well, uh, running enterprise security, going in, doing a, an assessment uh, after someone had been compromised. And typically uh, what we would find is that the least sophisticated attacker that got inside is the one that they noticed. Um, and they've actually trampled over and there have been other more sophisticated attackers hanging out inside that network for months or years. Uh, but finally, now the noisy attacker came in, also joined the club and, and got the other folks effectively kicked out. Um, and the second segment of our show, we'll talk a little bit about that persistent threat inside the network. And uh, Chris will go into some more details about um, what, where, and uh, how uh, you actually dig in and find those folks, because um, the, the more sophisticated they are, the less likely you are to find them. Mm -hmm. So step two in this attack on an election is to find the easiest vector into that network. You don't want to go to the hardest person. You don't want to go to the security team. They're protecting their systems. You may not even want to go directly to the head of that organization because there are people who are looking at what's going on. So you go to the volunteers within that organization. You go to uh, the, the receptionist and you send them emails or you get them to go to a website um, in which I can now take over your system. Usually to take over a system like that, they need to be running some kind of old software. So if you're fully patched up, you're generally safe, but you need to be able to find someone who is running old software. And within a large organization that's complex, that becomes easier and easier. Especially with a volunteer organization where many folks may bring their own computers in, they're allowed to access the uh, campaign network from their own devices. Those devices may or may not have gone through a security audit, depending on the sophistication of the campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, more likely they've not gone through one. Right. Yeah, so once I'm, I've got one of those uh, people and now I've taken over their system, I'm going to install a piece of malware on there called a RAT, a remote access tool, or a backdoor. Those are two types. Um, so whereas most people think of malware as this virus or worm that self-propagates and runs up muck everywhere, like you touch it and you catch it, that is one type of malware. It's the old style. If I'm a target attack and I'm hitting you, um, I'm going to use something that's not going to self-propagate. I want to highly target that. I don't want it to propagate because I don't want it found. I want it to stay there forever. I want to maintain access to that network. I want to maintain access to that system that I just owned. So now I've got my software on there that's going to make give me permanent access to that receptionist within your network. And I can use that receptionist system and the passwords and the accounts that that person has to, to search your network for everything else I need. And I can stay there and I can keep returning. Yeah, this is uh, one where now that the attacker's in um, and the sophisticated ones here, they've got 37 days, so they may have been in for a while. But this gets into the ideas with retention periods on data backups, because if you don't attack, detect an attacker for 112 days and you have a 90-day backup window, every version of your backup all the way back for 90 days is going to have that attacker's tools hidden in different systems. As once they get in, 
they'll want to dig their heels in and put as many uh, back doors and other uh, ways for them to regain access if you find one of the ways they've gotten in to uh, give themselves that persistency that they're looking for. Right. So we, we specifically call these target attacks or persistent threats. These are people who want to maintain access to your network. So they're going to find every way they can to maintain access to the network. That's installing their, their malicious software onto your system. Um, if you find that, they need to be able to maintain access or regain access to that network, even if they've been found. So they're going to they're going to compromise your backups. Um, you know, so that if your backups don't go back far enough, and 205 days is the current average. So if your backups don't go back 205 days, you're going to have a problem because that's the average amount of time an attacker dwells on a network before they're found. Wow. I'm a little speechless on the 205 days. You're listening to CyberTalk Radio. I'm here with Chris Garretts. After the break, we're going to talk about now that these attackers have moved in to your network, um, how do you find them in less than 205 days? Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm here with Chris Garretts, the CEO of InfoSight, and we're talking about malware hunting. So now these attackers have been inside your network for an average of 205 days. And I've actually even heard that some of the more sophisticated attackers will go in and patch your systems for you. Um, so they'll make you safer from the less sophisticated hackers, but they're actually fortifying and building up their own defenses. So hmm. uh, I'm going to walk through the evolution of this 205 days. They've moved into your business, and what are they doing while they're there? So a persistent attacker is going to want to maintain persistence. That's his number one goal once he gets in is to make sure he can retain access to that network. Because even if he gets in, I mean, think about it. If, if you work for a large organization and you have a file server, a couple file servers, you're an insider. How hard is it for you to find the right file that you need? Think about a guy who's never been in that network, who may speak a different language. They have to maintain persistence in order to find the files they need. They can suck up everything, but that's gonna take time. Uh, they're going to need to search. They're going to need to find the right databases. So they got to propagate through that network, search it, and figure out what that network looks like because they've never been in it before. Yeah. So if for folks that are uh, listening that are not super cybersecurity savvy, so imagine an attacker breaking into your office building and you've got paper filing cabinets around. If that attacker gets in and they could hide inside the building, Every night they could go through a drawer in the file cabinet and they could look at things. And this is the same thing that Chris is describing that's happening on your digital network. Um, now that attacker in hiding inside of your office building, you've got security cameras in place. You may have a security guard that walks through the building to make sure that people aren't in the different rooms at night. But most businesses are not actually doing that same um, active threat assessment and hunting for those attackers on their digital networks. They have a firewall, which is like having a, a maybe a fence around your office. They have, uh, you may have in place passwords in your systems, which is like maybe a key card to get into your office building. Um, but you have no security in most cases beyond that for the typical enterprise today on their digital networks. Right. And that analogy works really well because people get physical security. Um, to, to put that same analogy further, the average enterprise, even large companies, they put a fence around their building or their compound. Um, they put a gate guard on the front and they load up the place with a bunch of cameras. And those cameras don't necessarily hit everything. So it's targeted. So that's the current 
posture of security in, in networking as well is a couple cameras and a gate and a gate guard. If you can find a hole in that gate, if you can find a back door, um, there's, there's, pat, there's holes everywhere. Yeah, so those cameras are uh, what you call an intrusion detection or intrusion prevention system. Um, those are the, the technical terms for those, and they've been around for a number of, of years now. Um, and the, the attackers uh, understand them pretty well. This is a part of the, the, the trick on the digital side is with your security camera, you can put cameras up and try to get coverage on all the different angles, but a physical attacker will go try to find that one spot in your fence where you didn't have a camera covering it so they can cut a hole. The same thing happens with your intrusion detection and prevention systems. These attackers can actually go buy these same systems and then they can attempt to evade or pass them as uh, Chris mentioned with the antivirus software as well. The attackers will buy a specific version of antivirus software and then they'll continue to craft their attack until that version of software doesn't notice it. Exactly. Yeah, so um, the, the standard enterprise, again, it's it's cameras and a gate guard. If I can get past that, I'm going to stay in there for a very long time. If I'm hiding in your closet, you don't necessarily have a camera in your closet. And so I'm just going to come out, grab whatever I need. I'm still going to be in that closet. So all of a sudden, fast forward to today and the new topic that's being talked about is, is malware hunting that's what our company does it's what the military has been doing for the past several years and enterprise is just starting to do so InfoSight is uh is really focused on bringing this uh to enterprise and scaling it so that organizations can now not just look at a camera or have a gate guard but actually have a person do a bug sweep go in from room to room look under the bed look in the closet and find that person that's hiding in there yeah, so this is the, the way that, like, uh, going back to those political campaigns, they send out what they call the advance team, and that advance team will go through, say, the hotel that the candidate's going to stay at, and they will search the entire hotel for explosives, for bugs, for any type of threat for that target that they're defending on the, the physical side. Um, and you can do this now with software on your digital networks as well with the malware hunting solutions like the, the one from InfoSight. Exactly. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect analogy, perfect uh, way to position um, malware hunting. It's, it's finding those things that are already inside. You know, that gate guard might have a register of everything that went in and out, but normal users have to use this network too, so there's constant traffic in and out. And if that person looks legitimate and you let them through because they looked fine at the gate, but then their intent was different, like how do you measure that at the gate? You, you can't measure that until they've done their thing. Yeah. So... There's another category of solution. So let's just say I'm going to give up. I'm going to assume that because I have to block every attack, and if the attacker can find one way in, they win. Uh, I'm going to put a, a data loss prevention solution in place or a data leak prevention solution. Can you describe those to me and then uh, kind of go through the, the benefits, drawbacks? Why would you want to or not want to use one of those instead and just give up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a couple of vectors that people lose data. Um, one is if I'm a hacker and I get into your system and I start uh, pulling information out of your network. Well, the average user generally downloads more information that they send out to the internet. So when I start seeing that ratio flip onto the other side and you're sending a whole lot of data, say a gigabyte of data, and you normally are just, you're normally streaming YouTube, so you're constantly downloading. That is way different. That is an anomaly in that network. That is a perfect sign that someone's in your network stealing information. So that's a data loss prevention solution. A DLP is going to is going to identify those, flag them for the uh, for the security team or stop it. And so it, by the time it flags it, 
have I already lost information typically, or do they do a great job at stopping the first byte? It depends on how complex your organization is. If it's a complex organization, typically you don't want it to be uh, in the auto block mode because it might block things that are totally legitimate. If you've got multiple divisions within your organization, and if you're like General Electric and you've got you've got business units that the security team doesn't even know about, yeah, like that business unit could hit their entire thing is sending data out. Like, am I going to block that? No, I can't. So for those organizations that are complex, you're going to do it in a passive mode. You're going to get flagged on it while it's occurring. And all you can do is just watch it happen and try to stop it before they get everything. Yeah. So this is where you, you're you in a real-time uh, race, effectively, with the attackers. You have people making uh, judgment decisions, uh, trying to race against the attacker that's trying to, to effectively run out of the building with the files from your file cabinet. And do your security guards chase them? Do they not chase them? If the person's running with a bunch of folders from your file cabinet, they probably chase them and try to tackle them. But if they were wearing a nice suit and put the files in a briefcase and walked out through the lobby slowly, you're not going to physically see them go out. And so these data loss prevention solutions work if the attacker's doing something obvious that you can detect. But if the attacker looks like they belong and they're sending one email a day with an attachment that's three megabytes, but it's three megabytes of really important data, uh, from that compromised employee, um, every employee inside the company is probably sending an email a day with a three meg attachment on it. Exactly. We call that low and slow. Um, so every mitigation, every defense you try to think up, there's always an attacker who's going to figure out how to get past it. That's their entire job. That's their entire uh, thing in life is to make sure that they can get past these things that you're coming up with. So if I come up with a solution called DLP or data loss prevention, it's going to find absurd ratios of outbound traffic. Well, I'm only going to send a little bit, like you just said. Suddenly, that's render useless. Yeah. So, I mean, as this all gets down, you basically have to go through and figure out a way to give systems, computers in your network, whether they're the laptops for your employees or your servers, a clean bill of health. So for a, a malware hunting solution, it's like uh, the way I think about it is that you've got a, a patient effectively coming into the doctor's office, this laptop. And the doctor's going to go through and do a full exam to make sure that this person is healthy or, within the case, the malware hunting software is really a comprehensive analysis and health check that does much more than that. But that's the way I think about it. What else am I kind of missing there and, and other things that are going on? Yeah, I think that that's, that's hitting the nail on the head. Um, like our software for malware hunting uh, is going to do something called endpoint validation. So it is going to validate what's running on those systems, what's triggered to run in the future, uh, any sign of manipulation of that system. And it's going to do that on thousands of systems. So it's at scale. So for for our strategy uh, at InfoSight, it's to be able to say, is this network clean or not? Can you operate within it? Can you use this system or this device uh, confidently knowing that you know what's running on it? And so our, our software just validates that it's clean. It does that on a scheduled basis, uh, like a nightly scan, to make sure that it's clean. And then as devices coming on the network, uh, if you have a network access control kind of solution, um, it'll check those devices that come on. Say you flew out to China, you came back, and you went through customs, and it went, you, know, you, you lost sight of your laptop for a little bit. Well, people tend to come home with stuff that they didn't realize they're coming home with. So checking those uh, systems before they access critical resources is another area where endpoint validation works. So you mentioned uh, network access control. So I think this is an, another category of security solution that um, 
some enterprises have deployed, but uh, many don't. And especially if we've got some smaller business listeners, they likely do not have it at all or may never have heard about it. Uh, what is network access control? Yeah, this is a this is a big enterprise play. Um, it, it tends to be uh, usually focused on highly secure networks that need to be controlled. Uh, but, but network access control is basically saying, I'm only going to allow the devices that I say are allowed. And they need to be in compliance, they need to have security software, and they need to be clean. And so a malware hunting tool is going to make sure that it's clean, um, but that you know, all these solutions are generally designed to keep a, a network clean. It's one of the hardest things to do in an enterprise right now. Um, there is software that is inherently vulnerable to attacks, and we don't know who's attacking. So right now, it, we just have to do the best job we can with the tools we have. Yeah. So with that, that network access control, when a computer plugs into a network, it goes into a uh, onboarding network where it gets scanned and cleaned before it's really given permissions to go to the full network typically. So you'll, you'll plug in, it'll be, oh, I've never seen the system before, or I haven't seen you recently enough to, to validate your health. And um, so your software will work with those NAC solutions to do the health check step of the onboarding and inspection process? Exactly. It's a, it's a relatively new integration for us, um, but we're working with companies like uh, Cisco uh, to do that. They have uh, network access control solutions for large enterprises uh, to be able to implement. Um, I'd love to see network access control um, solutions expand into the small business area. You know, if you're a law office and you know exactly who your partners are, why are you allowing these other devices onto your network? You should be. You should have control of that environment. Yeah, I mean, it, and as uh, I work in the small business security world much these days, we're uh, going through really trying to help folks even just get an employee network and a guest or visitor network set up in their offices today. Uh, many small businesses will uh, have just one Wi-Fi network in their office, and someone comes in to visit, and they will give them the Wi-Fi password that has the file server or all sorts of uh, their application server there. Uh, CRM, maybe it's the, if it's a doctor's office, they've got their patient management app that is on that one Wi-Fi network, and folks are getting uh, permission just to connect into it because it's the network. Um, they haven't even gone to the route of setting up a guest network. So um, we're talking through a whole bunch of much more complicated and sophisticated attacks, but now, um, as, as we mentioned at the very beginning today, talking about ransomware and Bitcoin, now these sophisticated attackers are coming after smaller targets uh, it, because maybe enterprises are starting to deploy some of these more sophisticated solutions to try to keep them out. Um, but it just also with that drive-by self-replicating attacks makes it very easy. And having one network in your office, that's one easy way for folks to um, bring in a infected machine because there's no network access control on that one Wi-Fi network. Yeah, we we've been you know we've we've gone over a lot of the different attacks, some of the advanced stuff, some advanced solutions to try to stop that. Um, but the reality of today's world, digital world, is that most people are so far behind even that they're just doing, they're just struggling to get the basics done. You know, just installing antivirus and a backup solution. If they have that, they're doing pretty well as a small business usually right now. So we we've got a sometimes as a security professional that's dealing with advanced threats, um, got to step back look at what the rest of the world and then the other 99% are doing and how can we help them and make this more scalable, make it more affordable and expand the skill sets that are so critically uh, short. You know, we, we don't have enough people with this skill set. So how do we help all these other organizations? 
Yeah. So if I'm a, a big enterprise now and I've had that attacker in my network for the 205 days uh, and we're going through and now we've identified that they're in, do I need to reformat all of my servers and start over? Is there a way to actually go in and really sweep the facility, the data center and clean out all of the uh, ways that the attacker has dug themselves in? It really depends on how bad it is and uh, who, who's getting in there. You know, if it's a botnet, they're not typically uh, compromising network, you know, from top to bottom. So it's targets of opportunity. Uh, that system got popped. We got to go clean that one system. So generally, I would say, you know, 90 plus percent of the time, you can just reformat that one system that was compromised. Uh, the big thing that we do is, you know, our software will scan the rest of the network, make sure that we have a scope on how many devices are actually infected. Once we find the infected devices, uh, the number one strategy right now is just to wipe and reload them. You know, it's kind of a scorched earth, earth policy. Um, so backup solutions are important and having your files on a different server rather than on your local system because that local system, you know, you just expect your local system to get torched once every 12 months. So for your laptop, when you mean local system? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's one where... Yeah, I do that to my own cell phone every once in a while as well. I seem to drop and break them pretty frequently. People are like, why don't you have a case? Well, I just I figure every 12 months I should get a new cell phone just in case something's hiding inside there persistently. Mm -hmm. I don't think I click on bad links, but sometimes you really never know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a security professional, and I still do that. I'm paranoid. I reformat my systems regularly just to make sure. Yeah. So uh, with the... Uh, attack that we have going on out there right now uh, what's the number one way you're seeing folks get into people's networks you mentioned the email uh, piece is there something else that's happening that doesn't require uh, human activity so that email requires one of the employees to uh, click on things and security awareness training is, is a hard topic for a lot of folks um, it's one of the, the biggest ways but from a, just a purely automated attack vector right now, is there uh, a, a hot one that comes to mind that you're seeing? Well, um, people are constantly researching vulnerabilities in software today. So if you're running a web server, for instance, um, that web server has a specific type of software that runs that. Either there's a Microsoft version or there's the Linux version of web server. You know, So when a vulnerability is disclosed in one of that, in that software, there is a race to patch that vulnerability to make sure that it's not, there's that hole is not there anymore because the attackers are gonna take that vulnerability, create some kind of attack against it, and then put it in their crawler. And their crawler is just gonna search the internet for anybody that's vulnerable and attack them. So if you're just leaving it out there, it's been disclosed and you're not patching your system or upgrading it, then sooner or later this crawler is going to reach you it's going to automatically take over that system and suddenly you, you know that server is no longer yours yeah so we have these uh, attacks that have been disclosed and there's a patch available and those are are fixable and then there's this category of attacks they call zero day which is not just a, a single day this is all the days leading up to the fact that the attack gets disclosed and patched so that a zero day could be a an unpatched vulnerability that's around for weeks, months, potentially years, um, unless it gets disclosed. Right. So, uh, you know, most, most software is vulnerable to X number of vulnerabilities. It's got holes in that software that allows it to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Um, researchers are constantly trying to figure that out. The vendors who create that software are trying to make sure that they patch it up and, and make sure it's clean. 
and secure. The attackers that are researching these things and they don't want anybody to know, they research the same vulnerabilities, but they won't tell anybody. So suddenly they have a hole in your software that no one else knows about. And the vendor thinks it's clean. The buyer thinks it's clean. They think it's secure against these attacks, but some organization out there has found a hole in it and they're constantly leveraging that hole to, to get into any network they want to get into. And so those vulnerabilities they're holding onto and not telling anybody about, we call those zero days. Because a day one is the disclosure date. That's when everyone knows about it and the vendor knows about it and everyone's trying to fix it. Day zero is no one knows about it and it's being used in the wild. Yeah. Well, or someone knows about it and they may be good or they may be bad and they may be using it to attack good guys or bad guys. I think I saw an article the past week, someone offering $1.4 million on one of these dark web sites for a root vulnerability to the new iOS 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like iOS 10 has already been uh, rooted. Now, the question is whether there's like you can actually do that to your own phone, whether there's a way for an attacker to do that yet to be determined. But this is where you have a, a high profile target like the iOS operating system on an iPhone because there's so many influential people that have it. There's so many of them out there. Um, this makes it a very high value target for attackers. And uh, I mean, that's a $1.4 million is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing is because um, Apple actually has a bug disclosure program. They have a bug bounty program, which means that if you find, if you're a researcher and you find a vulnerability in iOS or their, their Apple software, they will pay you $200,000 for information on that so that they can fix it. They'll pay you that. And you just, you just find it, you get paid that. This organization that came out and said, well, we'll pay you $1.4 million for the exact same thing. What are you going to do? Now it's your morals because yeah. 200000 from Apple do the right thing, $1.4 million to a bad organization who sells that to nation states and bad people. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it's an interesting one for sure as you have these, these disclosure pieces. And you talked about the, the nation states. So um, I've been asked uh, recently as well as like why do the nation states – find this zero day and not disclose it. And if you go back and we're talking digital warfare, we go back to the um, physical world warfare again, nation states have to be offensive first. Um, Because if you're a nation state and you disclosed all of your zero days, let's just say you're going to be the the good white knight nation state, you're going to disclose every zero day you have. Now you have no weapons left for you to use on the offensive side against other nation states that won't disclose all of their zero days. So by keeping all of my zero days, I know I have a bunch that I know about that I can get into everyone else's systems. I know the other countries have that as well. And this is kind of the mutually assured destruction policy. If we ever have a digital cyber war, there are multiple nation states right now that can get into everyone's computers all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing back into that physical warfare that we've been training against for uh, the Cold War for the last uh, 30 years here in America, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, where that was hot. I mean, there's more than enough nuclear weapons to blow the whole world up. You have this mutually assured destruction where no one's going to start a nuclear war because of the catastrophic outcome you'd have. Um, I think this may be also with this kind of proliferation of zero days. These are kind of the nuclear weapons of the internet, and many nation states have enough of them to completely wreak havoc on the cyber side. Yeah, I think you know this is this draws into some really big moral questions. And this is the future of warfare. This is the future of morality and how we deal with each other. Um, we, 
you know, globalization, you know, that's been debated for a long time. Should we be sovereign or not? Well, the internet is kind of taking that choice away from us. The internet is global. The people who are attacking us are global. They're not in our country. They're not, you can't use our laws against them. So yeah. it's got to be global. You got to be able to reach them if you want to stop them. So this has come, this is basically drawing so many new questions that we don't have answers to yet. And I think we're going to be talking about it for a long time. Yeah, and if you combine this with artificial intelligence now, uh, which we talked about on our first uh, CyberTalk Radio available on www.cybertalkradio.com, if you now are deploying malware into an artificial intelligence platform, it starts to become, um, from this warfare perspective, self-driving cars, all of these things are all artificial intelligence. Now, if you're taking that zero day and you're hacking into tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of cars as we go to a self-driving car world, now you're not only getting in with these zero-day attacks and causing computer havoc, but you could potentially be causing real physical havoc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, as we look to the future, um, I, the science fiction writers, you know, I think they're still catching up with what we can possibly do with this. As the value of what we put on the internet and what we put in our digital domain goes up, um, the more things will happen there. You know, I, I, I dream of a world where war no longer includes death. It just includes taking over all your systems and suddenly you're rendered useless. Like that's the war of the future uh, that I foresee. And that's why I like, you know, this domain and thinking about it and defending against it because that's what's going to happen, I think. And with that broad philosophical question, we will wrap up CyberTalk Radio today. I'd like to thank Chris Garretts for joining us and educating all of us a little bit on malware and what the bad guys are doing. Thanks for having me.